Be aware of whether your trust deed allows default beneficiaries, how broad the default is, whether it applies solely on vesting to the capital or to annual income, and whether in the failure to do anything, it is the default beneficiary that is assessed or to whom amounts become presently entitled, which might be family issues, or whether it's accumulated in the trust. And the amendment period for an individual default beneficiary is likely to be four years, particularly in light of the decision in Yazbek. And for the trustee at law, your assessment period does not run until you have accessible income. The notional peppercorn $1, but the ATO have an accommodation to treat nil assessments as being assessments for the operation of amendment periods. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 324 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we spoke about missing trust distributions and how a default beneficiary can save you from paying top marginal tax rates when you have no resolution to distribute the trust income. Today, in this additional episode, the third for this week, let's look at these default beneficiaries again. What makes a default beneficiary? What do they get? And when and does anybody pay any tax on the trust income if the default beneficiaries' amendment periods for those years have already passed? Or will that income never be taxed? These are just some of the questions Paul Golden of Vectical Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. That's part a blessing and part a curse with default beneficiaries in that it applies and tax law operates of itself and the tax consequences follow as a consequence of the trust law. When we talk about as to what do we mean when we're talking about a default beneficiary, history of default beneficiaries is quite interesting because I'd say up until probably 1960 and before my time, trustees always had default beneficiaries uh, or invariably had default beneficiaries. And then we went through a process of time where people and drafters felt maybe it wasn't necessary to have a default beneficiary provision. And then later, more recently, there's been this real question asked, if you don't have a default beneficiary, do you have a validly constituted trust? And it goes back to one of the indica of trusts as to can you ascertain who the class of beneficiaries is and the ultimate class of beneficiaries to whom the trust goes. So we're back full circle, so to speak, in that trust deeds often now have some form of default beneficiary. But what is that default beneficiary and what are they entitled to? Generally, when we're talking about default beneficiary, we meet somebody who is entitled to the capital of the trust on vesting. So in other words, the trust fund on vesting. If there's still a trust fund, or um, to put it colloquially, if there's still money or assets in the trust when the trust comes to an end or trust vests, 
are there any particular beneficiaries who the trust deed says those assets go to as a question of trust law? That concept has been extended in that a lot of trust deeds provide on an annual basis that if no decision is made to income uh, or determining income or to specifying who the income goes to, it automatically as a consequence of the trust deed and trust law is applied to and is effectively using tax terminology becomes presently entitled to the default beneficiaries. It depends on each trust deed. So listeners need to be very careful with assuming that there is a default beneficiary or that that default beneficiary applies to a particular trust in an income year. Now, why I say it's a double-edged sword is because sometimes if distributions are not effective or haven't been done, as you say, nothing's been done or it's been done incorrectly, it might apply to tax those default beneficiaries. Often are individuals or exempt entities like charities or a mixture of both in that you then would have trust income that's not ordinarily taxed by the trustee at the penalty rate. However, there are some trustees that just uh, accumulate that income. So they, they expressly say, if you don't distribute the income by the end of the, let's say, income year or financial year, it uh, accumulates and accretes to corpus. In which case, if you do nothing, you're not going to have a default beneficiary that gets assessed. You're going to have the trustee that wears the assessment. So you need to check the trustee and you need to see what happens if the trustee fails to exercise discretion. Yes, absolutely. And then if there is a default beneficiary listed, then you need to check whether the default beneficiary is just for the capital upon vesting or for capital in general, or also for ongoing income. Absolutely. And, and Heidi, I must, put a, a, I must mention, it's not always clear, particularly in earlier deeds where tax in the year um, was not foremost in everybody's mind. It was, say, death duties or something else that was in mind. It's not always clear to whom the default beneficiary applies, or more, put it more correctly the other way around, whether the default beneficiary actually applies to the income of the trust. So sometimes it's left rather unclear as to whether there's an accumulation or it goes to a default beneficiary. So if there's an accumulation, so let's just assume the ball clearly falls into one court or the other, because in the end you have to decide between one or the other. You can't kind of sit on the line. So if the ball hits accumulation, then it means the trustee is assessed at 45% plus Medicare if it's an individual or at 45% if it's a corporate trustee. Is that right? Does the corporate trustee pay 45% tax even though it's a company and hence should only pay 25% or 30%? No, absolutely, you're right. And the reason being is because it's assessed in its capacity as a trustee. It's so not it's, being assessed as a company. Good. So that means it's still 45% but no Medicare. So that's what happens when it is decided that the um, undistributed income is accumulated. And if it falls 
the other way and it is decided that there is a default beneficiary, then that default beneficiary is assessed. That default beneficiary is then just assessed at marginal tax rates, whatever those marginal tax rates are. What happens if the money for all those years was paid to somebody else who's not a default beneficiary? Can the default beneficiary decline the distribution? Well, I suppose there's all sorts of, there's a raft of all sorts of issues that arise in that situation. The first is that it because the default beneficiary provision applies as a consequence of the trustee in law and the tax follows the trust is that the for tax purposes the default beneficiary becomes presently entitled to the income for tax whether that default beneficiary is aware of having received the default benefit or not now, this often comes up in the case of where there's been a significant capital gain. So I've got an example where um, it was around the Bamford sort of area and a number and the practitioners at that stage were very uncertain, as was much of the, um, you know, the country as to how you deal with, you know, Bamford and whatnot. So what landed up happening was that people thought, oh, well, let's just leave this massive gain in, and we're talking several million in the, um, in the trust. And, you know, we're not going to distribute it out and we're not actually going to, in, in real terms, pay out those funds to anybody. And um, this thing came under audit. And the question is, well, should the trust have been assessed? And because the trustee would be assessed, it wouldn't get the capital gains discount, which, uh, you know, you're looking at, uh, say, 50% of several million is still several million <laughs> yes. in additional taxable amount. And the trustee wouldn't get the uh, CGT discount, even if the trustee is an individual. It doesn't matter whether it's an individual or a company, it just doesn't get the CGT discount because it's a trustee. Absolutely, yes. And the discount provisions work that effectively it's only the beneficiary, an individual beneficiary of the trust that effectively gets the, the CGT discount. Now, in this case, the trust deed was very strange and nobody had sort of gone through it and whatnot. And the family, or rather the gent had had several marriages <laughs> and was now with his third spouse who considered half of that to be her money. And when you looked at the, the trust deed, the default beneficiary was his son from his first marriage. And because nothing had been done in the trust deed, or no resolutions had taken, it was very clear that the default beneficiary was son from the first marriage, who now uh, had a present entitlement to this huge capital gain. Effectively, I suppose you could call it the entirety of the trust. And the reason this was a really interesting question, because you had tax issues, but you now also had significant family issues in that tax might not be as important as who got the money or had the right to the money. And another reason why this might be interesting is it gives rise to, or is a good segue into the question that you asked before. Well, what happens if say money had gone to somebody else in some other form and the default beneficiary is assessed? So for example, can the default beneficiary disclaim the interest or renounce the interest in the trust? Can the default beneficiary call on that 
distribution, what happens to the amounts paid to such other persons, third spouse. In this case, interestingly enough, third spouse wasn't even a beneficiary of the trust, although she had received money from the trust. So, you know, it's a really interesting scenario, and it's a very real scenario that did happen. The question as to disclaimers is a very interesting question. I might just dovetail into that, if I may. Probably the leading case on disclaimers is Ramsden, which is a full federal court decision. And it sets the benchmark, as you would, for for what is an effective disclaimer and what is not an effective disclaimer. A disclaimer needs to be differentiated from a renunciation from a trust. And the easiest way of maybe suggesting one of the ways that might be differentiated is say, the beneficiary decides to disclaim their amount versus say, something being done to exclude the beneficiary, although that's not always the case. So for example, I think there was the case, there were two, there are two cases that come to mind with disclaimers and renunciations. Uh, first would be Nguyen, I don't remember the year that Nguyen was decided. And how do you spell Nguyen? N-G-U-E-N, I think, Nguyen. N-G-U-E-N? Yes. Okay. I can send you the case. And the second is Lusky. I keep on wanting to say Lewinsky. Lusky. So L-U-S-K-I. Yes, K-I. And around about the same time as Lusky, there was a case called Atherton. Now, Atherton was about the mistress who had received lots of handbags and other gifts over years. And um, Sugar Daddy had treated it, and I think he might have been a lawyer, actually, or a barrister, had treated them as trust distributions. And the court said, look, you can't disclaim because you accepted those handbags and you used them and you enjoyed the gifts. And it didn't matter that you didn't understand that they'd come from a trust instead of sugar daddy directly, you can only disclaim under Ramston when, um, when you clearly, by your actions, give up the gift. So going back to Ramston, Ramston sets the threshold. And the question coming out of Ramston is, can taking a default beneficiary, can you disclaim a gift in a particular year, so a distribution of income or capital in a particular year, Or do you need to disclaim your entire interest in the trust? And um, Ramsden effectively says, look, it probably depends on what kind of beneficiary you are. If you are a default beneficiary in the broad sense, then your right as a default beneficiary is a right in itself. And to be able to disclaim, you need to disclaim in its entirety. So in Ramsden, it was uh, relating to, I think it was the Steve Hart Trust. can't remember the actual name of the trust, but in fact, what had happened was that there were certain ineffectual distributions and you had four people who, uh, individuals who had the right to income and were considered default beneficiaries. And a number of years later, consequent to an audit, they decided to disclaim. And the court said, well, no, they couldn't disclaim because they were default beneficiaries. And they had to disclaim their entire interest in their trust. In other words, their status as a default beneficiary. However, if you're a beneficiary that receives income in a particular year, and that's your only right, in other words, if we could colloquially say a non-default beneficiary, just an ordinary beneficiary, 
then you're probably okay to disclaim that particular year's distribution or gift because each gift is separate. So it's very important to note what kind of beneficiary you are and how you can disclaim. I stand to be corrected, but I think the tax office still takes the position, notwithstanding some of their published documents, that you need to disclaim as a whole rather than each particular gift. And there are two things that the tax office actually has that are very useful. And the one deals with renunciations and the CGT events. It's 2001-26. And it deals with capital gains tax. What are the capital gains tax consequences for a beneficiary of a discretionary trust who renounces their interest in that trust? Okay, and it's TR 2001-? No, TD, TD. Ah, TD. Okay. Tax determination. The commissioner raises the concerns about CGT event C2 applying. Okay, and CGT event C2 is... Is the surrender otherwise ending of a... Um, right. Of a right, yes. Abandonment, surrender, forfeiture. And so... If a default beneficiary, or let's just say any beneficiary, if they disclaim and that disclaimer is legally valid, do they have any tax consequences or do all the tax consequences move back to the trust? So, Heidi, there again, it depends on what is being disclaimed. If we look at TR 2001-26, the commissioner suggests that a default beneficiary disclaiming may have its own or he or she's own capital gains tax consequences. Now, in practice, that's likely to be nil because the market value and the cost base of that right are likely to both be nil. But there might, for example, be a case where that right has some value and that would lead to a capital gain. Now, that's aside from the distribution tax consequences. Now let's look at the distribution consequences. So you've got a distribution that's several million in capital gains and say some 100,000 in income. Individual disclaims for whatever reason they disclaim and it's an effective disclaimer. That disclaimer happens from the date of the distribution. So it's as if that distribution never ever took place. And, and so now it goes back to the trust. Now it goes back to the trust. And the trustee gets assessed. And the trustee gets assessed. Well, it depends. <laughs> Because usually, well, for the default beneficiary or the benefit, let's just say the beneficiary renouncing or disclaiming, disclaiming would be the better word, disclaiming the interest, there would be no further tax consequences. But how does that then get dealt with in the trust? If it was, say, the case of a default beneficiary, then likelihood is that the trustee is going to wear the tax. If that's a capital gain, that's going to be very unfortunate because the trustee is going to lose the CGT discount. If, however, it's a ordinary, what I call the ordinary, not, not, not strict legal, but the non-default beneficiary who's disclaimed that particular distribution, it might then go through to the other beneficiaries that have received income during that same year in proportion to their distributions. And it becomes a little bit complex because you would need to go back and have a look at the distribution minutes to have a look at as to how, how that might work. 
Yes, but the default beneficiary usually only enters the scene when you don't have any other beneficiaries. Mm. So usually... Absolutely. So that's why I was differentiating just for completeness as to if it's the default beneficiary that's given up or disclaimed their right compared to in a particular income year, person A has decided they don't want this gift and disclaims that gift. And now the, the disclaimed gift of X amount goes back. It goes back into the pool in the trust, but how is it taxed in that particular year? As opposed to the default, where there's been a distribution minute, but for some reason, somebody disclaims. Yes, and with a default beneficiary, you don't even have a distribution minute. So that might buy, it might go to the default beneficiary. So if there is a distribution minute and it distributes it to X, Y, and Z, and then one of them defaults, then it probably goes in proportionate halves to the other two or however it is split. But if there is no other beneficiary and we just have the default beneficiary, then if the default beneficiary declines the income distribution, then it goes back to the trustee and the trustee pays 45%. And if it happens to be a capital gain, then the trustee also loses the CGT discount. I mean, the trustee doesn't lose it because he never had it. He basically doesn't get it. Yes. So I suppose, Heidi, just going back to Ramsden and what is necessary for an effective disclaimer. The other thing is this question of you need to disclaim within a reasonable time a reasonable time of becoming aware of that gift. So the real question is, what's a reasonable time? And there's no real indication as to what a reasonable time is. The ATO have an earlier ATOID, and, and there again, I don't recall the, the, the ATOID number, and I can get that to you. I'll get you the, the details of the ATOID, or if you bear with me. And it's funny that you call it ATOID. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I was never sure. I, I used to always say ATOID, but of course, ATOID is much better. I'm not sure if anybody else in Australia will understand that, but ATOID 2010-85, where they <laughs> accept Ramsden. So 2010-85. Dash 85, yes. Okay. Or slash 85. And that ID is basically a response to Ramsden. Yes, or it's a, it, it, it encapsulates Ramsden in its, in its thinking. I think it still has to be updated for Lusky, but they talk about needing to be done within a reasonable time. But again, no guidance is given what is a reasonable time. So if I might give you a postulate based on a fairly recent example I've had, child was distributed a property in specie from a trust for whatever reason. At that stage, child had just become a major was not very worldly and was off studying somewhere else and signed the documents and didn't understand and always understood that he owned the held the title in the property on behalf of the trust and forever in a day you know the trust paid for everything and he always understood that if that property got sold he would not be entitled to anything and that it was always just him effectively as the nominee of the trust. And lo and behold, now, let's say now, many years later, they want to sell the property and he was looking to transfer the property back to the trust. And 
it was pointed out that he owned the property beneficially because it was an in-specie distribution to the beneficiary as a, a, as a beneficiary. So in other words, it wasn't a transfers nominee. There was a property in a trust. Yes. And the trust made an in-specie distribution to this young fellow. Yes. And so then basically the young fellow was the legal and beneficial owner of this property. Yes. And there probably was no longer a trust because the tr trust probably lost its only asset. But let's well, say the trust yeah, had some be. other let's assets. Let's just assume it had other assets. Yes. And property is probably not the best example, but it is the example. Since the trust paid all the expenses for this property, it meant that there were trust distributions to this young fellow. Absolutely. But, but it goes beyond that. For 30 years, the trust paid everything for the property. Both the trustee, who hadn't com fully comprehended what it had done, and the beneficiary hadn't understood that he was not a nominee and was actually beneficially owned the property. And it was only on trying to transfer it back to the trust that they realized that he was the beneficial owner. So besides the family issues involved in that, the question is, in, in the present, the beneficiary has held the asset for 30 years, but under a misapprehension. And today, he understands suddenly that he is beneficially owns that property. Yeah, but all up so far at the moment, that sounds like great news. He's well, owning the property <laughs> that he thought he didn't own. Absolutely. For him it is, but for the rest of the family, it's not great news. We always thought they had a, a trust asset worth, say, $5 million. Now, the question is, could he disclaim his interest today? Because he only became aware of that interest or the nature of that interest today. So he always knew he was registered on title, but he didn't know that he was beneficially owning that property. So this is a really interesting case. I don't know the answer to that. We've currently sought QC advice on that and we're awaiting the advice, but um, it raises, it's, it's a really good example as to, well, when, do you, when is a reasonable time? And what is reasonable knowledge of the, of the gift or distribution? And that's probably where Lusky is very useful in that, or, or not useful, in that Lusky, the court held that a mom or a wife, a spouse, in this case happened to be the, the wife, who had received distributions from a family trust for many years and then sought to disclaim, was precluded from disclaiming, or the court felt she no longer, it was no longer within a reasonable time of becoming aware. And the knowledge of the tax agent was attributed to her. So the fact that the tax agent, her tax agent had lodged returns, returning those income, even though she never knew what was being returned or professed, you know, I signed on the dotted line, but I didn't know what I was signing. The tax agent was taken as her agent. And when you say returning income, you mean income was declared on the tax return. You don't mean the income was returned and paid back. You mean the income was listed yes, on the tax absolutely. return. absolutely. I'm talking returned in the tax return rather mm -hmm. than, in fact, the, the fact here was that she'd never received actual payment of any of those amounts. They were all notional accounting and tax entries and had been done for whatever reason 
and um, from my recollection of the case. <laughs> but the important point for me was that the court felt that the tax agent was a real agent. And I think that's very important for tax agents, in particular accountants, to understand that they stand often as an agent to their client and that they can, by their actions, can bind their client, the ultimate taxpayer, the default beneficiary or the beneficiary by their actions. And their actions can be attributed to the beneficiary. So in this case, mom didn't know she was a beneficiary for however many years, and it was a number of years, but, but she was deemed to know because her tax agent knew and her tax agent was her agent. So this is the disclaimer of a default beneficiary entitlement. So whether a default beneficiary can disclaim or not. Now let's assume that the default beneficiary doesn't disclaim. Hence, they would have to include all the income that fell to them over the years in their tax returns. But what if those tax returns have already been lodged and are past the amendment period? Then my understanding is there's nothing they have to do. They received this income, they should have declared it, they didn't declare it, they didn't know, the amendment period has passed, hence nobody will ever pay tax on this income. You know, Heidi, it's like anything in tax. There's um, Section 170 of the Income Tax Act really deals with the amendment periods. So there's a whole list of amendment periods that, you know, and when different amendment periods work. But let's just recap in a very high level summary that small businesses and individuals generally have a two-year amendment period. Large businesses and beneficiaries of trusts and trustees have four-year amendment periods. Now, the case of Yazbek, which I think was a 2015 case, but I stand to be corrected, that significantly opened up and broadened the amendment period for individuals to the extent that even if you don't know you're a beneficiary, so for example, our default beneficiary of a trust, your amendment period is effectively four years. So I know a number of commentators at the time who were making submissions to the tax office very much said that almost everybody in Australia today therefore has a four-year amendment period, consequent to Yazbek. Oh, really? Do they think that discretionary trusts are that common? Yes, <laughs> that common. And the discretionary beneficiaries are often that broad that if you actually went through it, <laughs> very few people wouldn't be a potential beneficiary of some family trust somewhere in Australia. Are you sure? Because it sounds to me very much like an eastern suburbs bubble. I think in certain parts of Australia, very few people would be part of a discretionary okay. trust. I'm always, I'm always really surprised when you're dealing with something and you then ask them, has somebody got a discretionary trust? They go off to brother or sibling or uncle or somebody and you discover they've got a discretionary trust that nobody was ever going to get a cent from, but that potentially opens up your, your thing. So I don't think it's that tongue-in-cheek. But let's just say a lot of people, <laughs> unbeknowingly, have four-year amendment periods. Yes. Okay, good. So let's say the um, discretionary trust didn't make any trust resolutions for, let's say, 20 years, a long time. Absolutely, a long time. And so 
And the Beyond trustee, the four years. Exactly. And the trustee did include a default beneficiary who didn't know they were a default beneficiary. So now, not the last four years, but the income of the from 20 years ago to four years ago, those 16 years, that income is assessed to the default beneficiary. He didn't know or she didn't know. They didn't include it in their tax returns. Their tax returns are past amendment period. Hence, the income of those 16 years will never be taxed. Absolutely. So Heidi, often how this comes up is say through an audit or some, something of that sort happening where a, an amount is disallowed and it now gets assessed to the default beneficiary. And for some reason, for example, your taxpayer being the trustee in this case might have accepted with the commissioner or agreed with the commissioner to extend the, the amendment periods during the progression of the audit, which has taken several years. And you're now sitting seven years down the line. Trustee could be assessed back to the seven years, but nobody's gone back to the default beneficiary and asked its permission to keep the the assessment period open. This would be a, a, an example of where a default beneficiary gets the entitlement seven years ago, outside of its four-year amendment period. There's been no fraud and evasion because they didn't even know that they had become the default beneficiary. So no ability under 177, 170, subsection seven, to sound better, <laughs> to extend out the amendment assessment period. periods. Yeah. And it may be the case that in that situation, nobody gets assessed on those amounts because it's outside of time to go and amend the default beneficiaries' tax assessments. Where it becomes really interesting is, for example, if default beneficiary has less than the 18,000 odd and is not needed, you know, it's generally assessed income on the fact that no return needed or hasn't lodged a return. And for some reason, such as that has left open their amendment period. And therefore their assessment period has not run. They may then be required to return an assessment in that year. So if the default beneficiary never lodged a return or lodged no return necessary, mm then the amendment period never started, hence never finished, and hence they have to lodge tax returns for the past 20 years. Absolutely. And I think that's something really important because a lot of people don't understand or a lot of advisors don't necessarily understand that a no return necessary response doesn't start the amendment period running. So yes. in other words, you're left with an amendment period continuing. So in, in a way, it actually would be better to lodge a tax return, to lodge a nil tax return, rather than to just click NIN, you know, no return necessary. Abso absolutely. And, and I suppose, well, even the nil return has a question, and, and that's particularly relevant for trustee returns, because most trustee returns are returned as nil returns where they're returned and there's no income under any of the assessment provisions. And the big question has been, well, do your assessment periods run for the trustee? And at law, they probably do, don't run so that you've got an, you know, you've got assessment periods that are open for forever and a day, but the tax office has given administrative con 
sessions or practice. I think it was 2015, PSLA 2015, 2015-2, which deals with trustee assessments most recently. And he takes the approach that, um, you know, provided no fraud and, and evasion and whatnot, that if you, you've, as the trustee, have put in a null return, they will treat that as being a return for assessment periods. My big caveat there, Heidi, is given the long-standing practice of the tax office to do about turns on the administrative practice, and often retrospectively, I generally caution anybody to take too much heed of ATO administrative practice. And the acronym is PSLA, isn't it? Mm. Practical statement and then LA is legal. Legal legal administration, I think it stands for. Okay, good. <laughs> to be quite honest, I can never remember. Yes. So this PSLA 2005. I think it's Law Administration Practice Statement. Exactly. But for some reason, the acronym we, is we, PSLA. We, yeah, we switch it around. Yes. So PSLA 2005-2 basically says if there's no fraud or evasion and the trustee has lodged NINs, so no return necessary, then treat those NINs as if they were nil returns, meaning the amendment period started and ended as no, if it was no, a normal it, return. No, it goes further. The null return would be treated as a real return. So in other words, I'm saying is that even if you, it, to, to have a, an assessment period running, you'd need $1 of income, the peppercorn income in the trust to make sure at law that you've got a valid assessment. Oh, I see. So if the assessment, if there is no, no income, it still counts as a it's, valid return, doesn't it? It counts as a return, but it doesn't count as an assessment for the assessment periods. Oh, really? So if you have a loss with yes, zero absolutely. income, it's, it doesn't count absolutely. as an assessment. So that's part of the problem where you've got a loss, for example, or often where all the income has been distributed through the trust, so the trust has no income. So a number of practitioners often leave a residual $1 in the trust to make sure that they get an assessment period in the trust. Oh, really? And is this in general that whenever you lodge a tax return that has a loss and hence has zero taxable income, that you don't actually have a valid assessment that starts the amendment period? <laughs> Um, or is it only for the trust? I don't, I don't have an answer to that, but I know it's in the trust. As far as I know, that's because of the assessing provisions in Division 6 and the way the provisions, whether it's 99, 97, 98 or 99A, assess, you, you don't have an assessable amount unless you've got actually an amount in the, you know, that the trustees assessed on. Okay, good. So if you put the other tax returns aside, but for the trust tax return to have a return that starts the amendment period, you need to have at least $1 of assessable income. Yes. Good. And so that means a no return necessary is basically identical to a return that is lodged with $0 assessable income. They're basically the same because they don't start the assessment period. But PSLA 2015-2 basically says for the trustee, an NIN or a tax return with zero assessable income will be treated as a tax return with at least $1 of assessable income. Yes. 
But this PSLA 2015-2 doesn't apply to the default beneficiary. No, correct? It, it solely applies to trustee returns. So that means if 20 years ago the default beneficiary didn't lodge a tax return, hence the amendment period never started and never ended. So in theory, the default beneficiary would have to lodge a tax return and pay tax on that income. The default beneficiary could denounce the trust income and then it's assessed to the trustee and then the trustee no longer has to lodge a tax return and pay tax on that income thanks to PSLA 2015-2, correct? Correct, although <laughs> I, my, my, my gut tells me you'd be in for a fight. A, a fight. But this is our current understanding. Yes. So that means the amendment periods might save you if you have a trust that has never made any resolutions and so all the income goes to a default beneficiary and let's say the trust never paid any income, nothing, nobody ever did anything and you have a default beneficiary who did lodge tax returns, then most likely your problem is only four years old and not 20 years old. And if the default beneficiary never lodged tax returns or didn't lodge tax returns for those years, you might have a chance getting out of it by the default beneficiary renouncing their interest and then using PSLA 2015-2. Yes. Be aware of whether your trustee allows default beneficiaries, how broad the default is, whether it applies solely on vesting to the capital or to annual income and whether in the failure to do anything, it is the default beneficiary that is assessed or to whom amounts become presently entitled, which might be family issues, or whether it's accumulated in the trust. And the amendment periods for an individual default beneficiary is likely to be four years, particularly in light of the decision in Yazbek, and for the trustee at law, your assessment period does not run until you have accessible income. The notional peppercorn $1, but the ATO have an accommodation to treat nil assessments as being assessments for the operation of amendment periods. Welcome back. So you have a few options, more than I thought when there are no resolutions to distribute trust income. To finish off, I asked Paul Golden about Division 7a deemed dividends. The same basically applies to Division 7a deemed dividends, correct? If you have a Division 7a problem and you now have deemed dividends allocated to shareholders, but those shareholders lodge tax returns, which are now out of the amendment period, then these deemed dividends have nowhere to go and hence Absolutely. nobody will pay tax on you know, it. Heidi, sometimes this is a real problem with working through Division 7A in that, and it's becoming very apparent now where a lot of taxpayers and their structures are in difficulty as to do, do you still have amounts, and, and, and it becomes more so where there's been this talk of revisiting Division 7A and rewriting it. And the question is, well, have, have a large amount of, say, amounts been already been assessed as deemed dividends or should have been assessed as deemed dividends in, say, years five to however long ago? 
probably 1997 is the year that comes to mind, where they weren't assessed during that time. And, and now the period for assessment has lapsed. So that, um, you know, you're sitting with these, what are thought of as potential issues, but you're actually, um, so I mean, the, the example I think of is very old amounts that are sitting out there as very old loans. Might some of those actually have been Division 7A assessed as deemed dividends up to five years ago? And now there's no, you know, the, the deemed dividends have come and gone, as, as it were, because there's no ability to tax or assess those early amounts because there's no fraud innovation, but you've, you've passed that time. The question as to whether you can write them off is a really interesting question because, and I don't have an answer to that, because do you refresh those dividends or do you refresh the loans in some way and by then writing them off today? And I might, that, that, that just as an aside, that was the question that when I had a look at, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to answer in full. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's a real, it's a real question as to how, what do you deal, how do you deal with those, those amounts? So that basically means that, yes, the deemed dividends don't have anywhere to go when the individual tax return is outside of its amendment periods. Yes. But then the question is, what happens with the loan within the company? Because then if the company writes it off, you have income. And will that then be taxable income? Or how is that then treated? Because the write-off then might still trigger to trigger, absolutely. exactly, trigger So, tax. for example, you might trigger to... to 245 commercial debt forgiveness or some other provision. So one of the issues is, is that you might not have the full loan that's accessible today because much of it should have been treated as a deemed dividend in the past. But by writing it off, do you create other tax issues? For example, Division 245, commercial debt forgiveness, do you enliven that provision? And that's against the entire amount that's been written. Yes, and that provision says that you then should offset the uh, written of amount against a cost base. There are different categories how you should treat this loan. There's a tier of how it gets applied against various tax attributes in, in the company and how it then reduces their ability to, say, use depreciable assets or cost base in the future. Heidi, I do raise another question, which comes out of this, and actually you didn't raise, but it's a really interesting one, and it's going to come up, is if you've got a, as part of a trust group, you've got, uh, say, amounts that have gone to a company and have given rise, say, UPEs, and that amount is not effective for some reason. So I think Ramsden was an example of that, where the company was not a beneficiary at that time. So it couldn't have received the distribution, which today, without remembering the full facts of Ramsden, would have potentially created Division 7A issues. But what if now those UPEs aren't actually effective? So there's no UPE anymore between the trust and the company, and the default beneficiary should have been assessed to those amounts. And that might be one way where what you think is a Division 7A complexity might be, might be changed. So UPE is basically 
when the trust distributes income to the company, but it's not paid, so the money remains within the trust and the company just has a loan against the trust, correct? Yes, that's correct. Whether it has a loan or a UPE. Now, for Division 7A purposes, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference anymore because financial accommodation, but there's been this huge debate over whether a unpaid present trust entitlement is a debt or a loan at law or whether it's something different. Now, the recent case or fairly recent case of Fisher versus Nemsky has given rise to further complexity in that debate where they talk about it being some sort of quasi debt. Now, one of the reasons, for example, why that might be very relevant is if it is some sort of debt, then do the statutory limitation periods apply in the various states? Whereas if it's an unpaid present entitlement, in other words, just in equity rather than in some form of contract, then most, if not all, the statutory limitation periods would not apply to the UPE. Yeah. So you could have a UPE owing for 20 years and beneficiary can still come tomorrow and claim it. Whereas mm. if it's a, a contractual debt or a debt covered by the statute of limitations, after the statutory period in Victoria, that's six years, they could no longer claim it. So the company basically lost the money. You also have a Division 7A problem with all this again, I think, because the company made a loan to an associate because the trust quite often is an associate of the shareholder. Hence, there's a Division 7A issue, correct? The UPEs are a nightmare under Division 7A, Yes, they, 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 they're a nightmare, but often what they are is they the linkage. So what you've got is you've got, say, an amount owing to a company, a UPE or a loan, and then the actual funds have gone out to an associate of the shareholder, Mr. A or Mrs. B. And effectively, Division 7A flows through. If we could use sort of linking through the UPE or the loan through to A and B and linking them to the, the, the company. What I'm saying is that that nexus might break if there wasn't any effective UPE. I don't know the situations in particular facts. You'd have to look at it. But given that <laughs> the, the number of times trusts distribute to persons or entities that are not actually beneficiaries, it's just something to be aware of. Division 7A is... The, the other thing that we probably should touch on and not go into it in too much detail, but, but because it's becoming a real live issue with the tax office and... I mean, we're waiting on their um, on, on their response, which was supposed to be out by June and then in July, and we still haven't heard anything, but is 100A and reimbursement agreement, 100 capital A and reimbursement agreements, which have a indefinite assessment period. Oh, really? So no amendment period, basically. How is that? I stand to be corrected, Heidi, right here. And it's actually a good question for me to go back. But I think it's because it might work because it's some sort of anti-avoidance provision. And I don't know the answer to that, to be perfectly honest. Yes. I just know that 100A has an indefinite. Uh, I'd have to go back to yes. 170 and look there. 
Okay, but you are certain that 100A has an indefinite assessment period? Yes. Welcome back. Next week in episode 325, we will start our next mini-series, five episodes about property development. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Music